Let's go back to 1911. A hundred and how many years ago? A hundred and a dozen. 112 years ago, 1911. You ever heard of uh, Douglas MacArthur? He was a captain. He was not far from here. He was down in San Antonio in a maneuver unit that had just been started, an experimental maneuver unit. He was blue blood military. His dad was a Medal of Honor winner, was a general officer, and MacArthur was destined to great things. He had graduated in 1903 from the Academy, West Point. He was number one in his class, and he had the third highest ever points of merits for a graduate up to that point at West Point. I mean, he knocked the top out of everything. Well, he was in San Antonio, and in 1911, a group of young guys, most of them 18 years old, went to the United States Military Academy there in West Point on the Hudson River, and they took the oath of office. This is about commissioning, the Great Commission, okay? And they all took an oath of office uh, before they finished four years later. Uh, rather inauspicious group compared to MacArthur. But before it was all said and done, this was a time of peace. Uh, George V was king of England with Mary, no problems. There was very little trouble around the world. Sun Yat-sen had become the president of the Chinese Republic and not the uh, communist Chinese nation. About the only place where there was much trouble was the Mexican Revolution. It had been going on for a couple of years and it would last for about another eight. So it was a time of peace. It was a very small army, very small corps of officers. When this group graduated, there, wasn't, there weren't enough billets. There weren't enough spaces for all of them to occupy, as a matter of fact. The army was so small. Rather inauspicious group. But this became the class that the stars fell upon. 37% of this group of 165 graduates became general officers in the United States Army. Two of them five-star, two of them four-star, seven of them three-star, 24 two-star, 24 one-star. And there has not been another class like it since. When they graduated in June of 1915, the world had changed. It was immersed in war. America tried to stay out of it, but they weren't able to. And they took an oath of office when they came out on that parade field that day. They took an, office, an oath of office to, as they were commissioned to do what? To defend the Constitution of the United States of America against all enemies, where? Foreign and domestic. That they would bear true faith and allegiance to the same. That they took that obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion and that they would well and faithfully discharge the duties upon which they were about to enter. And they did. If you were to take a look at that group, the one that rose to the top, you would have never guessed, because he was a late bloomer. He was living on a farm in Abilene. He was born in Denison, Texas. You know who I'm talking about. If you don't, you'll discover in a moment. His older brother, they didn't have enough money to send all the kids to college, so his older brother, Edgar, went first. And then when it was time for him to go, he left the creamery and he applied to the Naval Academy. But he was too old. He was a late bloomer. He was 21, and all the other folks that were entering the academies were about 17 or 18. Not only that, but in a class of 165, he graduated 64th. You do the math. He was not in the top 10%. He wasn't in the 20th 
percentile. He wasn't in the 30th percentile. He was 40th percentile. Merits, you compare him with MacArthur. He was 125 out of 165. He was in the bottom third of his class. But you know who he was. He was Dwight David Eisenhower. Little did he know when he took that oath of office on that parade field, when he was commissioned, the great commission to which he was going to be called. Little did he know that 80 years ago from today, in the month of August in 1943, at this very time of year that they were making plans then for the Normandy invasion, and they had to select the commander of the Supreme Allied Forces Task Force. And the duty fell upon this mediocre late bloomer who had proved to be an excellent administrator and leader of men. And he didn't even know the plan. He didn't know it until much later, until December of 43. But he then became responsible for the three million men and women that had mobilized in the southern part of England, the 175,000 troops that would then storm the beaches of Normandy on the 6th of June, the 1,200 aircraft and the 4,000 ships, the greatest armada that has ever been formed, and the greatest victory, I think, that has ever been achieved in military history. The official order of the day that day on the 6th of December, I'll abbreviate it. I won't read the whole thing. But he took some time to compose this. He said, you're about to embark upon the great crusade. It's the one toward which we have striven for many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. And then near the end of it, he said to them this, I have full confidence in your courage Devotion to duty and skill in battle. We will accept nothing but what? Full what? Victory. But you know Paul Harvey, right? Paul Harvey has what? The rest of the story. And some of you know that in his breast pocket, he had a note that he had scribbled off very hastily, which was the other order of the day. He was prepared if the invasion did not succeed to take full responsibility. You see, with this great commission, this great responsibility, and this great crisis, this great man that had been commissioned to this duty also knew that there was a great crisis that he had to face and a great conflict that had to be overcome. That's what happened when, happens when we take on a great commission. It is going to lead to conflict, and folks, we are not certain when we take that task upon ourselves that we will survive. That's important to remember. And the note in his pocket read this way. It was written on the 5th of June, the day before D-Day. Our landings in the Cherbourg Hav area have failed to gain a substantial foothold, and I have withdrawn our troops. My decision to attack at this time and this place, you remember the weather was terrible. There was a very small window for the attack to be made. It was based on the best information available. The troops... The air and the Navy did all that bravery and devotion could do. If any blame, if any fault then attaches to the attempt, it is mine alone. You see, when we take on a great commission like that, we take on a great responsibility. And we may delegate the authority to accomplish the task to many people that are in our command. But there is one person then that assumes the responsibility, and responsibility is never delegated. Think about that, friends. 
The Lord gives us a great commission, and he calls each one of us to a great task, and he gives each one of us a responsibility, and we cannot delegate that responsibility. You know, we see this in the scarlet thread. We see a kind of pattern in all of the commissions. Um, Usually it is in the time of great crisis, as we had in 1943 and 44. There's a confrontation between God and the person that is being commissioned. And then there's the commission that comes along. Dennis Bratchett has kind of laid out part of this, and I've filled in some other gaps in the plan. After this, there's a bit of doubt. There's concern. There's a bit of worry after we take on the commission. And then God comforts us and he assures us that he will be with us. And he confirms it with a sign. And then we enter the conflict. All those begin with C. I didn't plan that, but... Crisis, confrontation, commission. Concern, comfort, confirmation, and conflict. You look at it in the life of Moses, for example, in Exodus, Exodus 1 and 2. The crisis was this. The children of Israel were in bondage, in Egyptian bondage, and we know that. The confrontation was very clear. Moses goes up on Mount Horeb, and there is God. He appears in the form of a flaming bush, and he says, Take off your shoes, because why? You are on holy ground. That's quite a confrontation. And then what happens? He commissions him. He says, therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. There's the commission. What a daunting task. They've been in there for about three or four generations. (laughs) There may be about two million of them, three million. We don't know exactly. We know what numbers tells us the number of males was. So it's a daunting task in the commission. There's a concern then. What does, what does Moses say? He immediately says, who am I? <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And that's not the last time he said it. Uh, a little bit later then he said, who then shall I say when they ask me, whom shall I say sent me? See, there's a question, concern. And, and what if they don't believe me? So he keeps coming up with all of these questions. And then finally, he, his last sort of defense against the commission is, well, I can't do what? I can't speak very well. I'm not very eloquent. And God has an answer for each one of those. But there was doubt. There was concern. And then there comes comfort and the assurance. What does God say? You don't know who you are, who am I, but let me tell you who you're going to tell them sent you. You're going to tell them I am sent you, the one who is the eternal God. Certainly I will go with you. And then you will say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent you to Pharaoh. And then there's the confirmation. There were three signs. You know, how will they, how will they know that what I'm saying is true? And you know what the signs were? The rod that becomes a snake becomes a rod, right? The leprous hand that pull, it pulls it out and it's leprous, then he puts it back in and then it's whole. And then the water from the Nile that he pours on the land and it turns to blood. So there were signs that confirmed this. And then God said, even before this, there's going to be another sign. When you finish bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt, you're going to return to this very spot, and you're going to do what? You're going to worship me here. That's going to be your sign. And then there was a conflict. He then brings them out of Egypt. No, he doesn't yet. There are nine times that Pharaoh says, yeah, you can go. No, you can't. Yeah, you can go. No, you can't. (laughs) And there are nine plagues. And then finally, after the tenth, there was conflict. 
There was a constant grumbling of the people for water, for food. They didn't like the manna. They wanted meat, on and on and on and on. There was the idolatry with the golden calf. There was Korah's rebellion against Moses and Aaron. And then they had to fight the Midianites, and the sun stood still. They had to fight Sion and Og. You see, there was conflict that they had to go through in order then to reach the promised land someday. Look at Gideon. Gideon, after seven years of oppression by the Midianites, the land had been consumed by the Midianites. They were like a plague of locusts. There was almost nothing to eat. They took everything the Israelites had. And then there was a confrontation from God. Gideon is there at Orpah. He is threshing his wheat, and he's hiding it away so that the Midianites can't find it. And it says, then the angel of the Lord appeared to him. And there is the confrontation. And he gives him this commission. Go in this your strength and deliver Israel out of the hand of the Midianites. Haven't I sent you? There's the commission. And there's concern. He has doubt about his adequacy. Well, then, Lord, why has all this happened? You know, why have you let the Midianites do this to us? Where are all the miracles? You know, the miracles that you performed to bring our, our people out of Israel? Where are the miracles? Why aren't you performing those? Has the Lord abandoned us? Why are we in the hands of the Midianites? There's doubt in the mind of Gideon. And then what does God say? He comforts him. Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man, just like you were going out into battle against one man. And he gives him three signs. Gideon says, well, I want a sign from your Lord. So he goes in and he brings out some meat and stew that he's going to give to the angel of the Lord. And he puts it on a rock and the angel of the Lord then puts a rod on the rock and it incinerates it. That's a pretty good sign. <laughs> but you know, Midian, Gideon hasn't had an, enough confirmation. So a little bit later, you know, he does the what? The, the fleece. He puts out the fleece. He says, Lord, you know, I'm going to put out this fleece. And if the Ground stays dry and the fleece is wet. I'll know that you're sending me. And then, of course, that's what happened. And he wrings out buckets of water of, out of the fleece. Well, Lord, you know, I'm still not convinced. And you know what he did. If the ground is wet and the fleece is dry, and the Lord did that. But he confirmed it. The Lord was very patient with Midian. And then the conflict comes. They defeat the Midianites, but Ephraim was upset because Gideon had not invited them to go into battle. And there's resistance with Ephraim. The men of Succoth resisted and didn't go into battle with, with uh, Gideon against the Midianites. And to top it all off, when they're all finished and they want to pay off Gideon, he says, no, just give me the, a golden earring from each man. And he put it in a pot and he melted it down and he made a golden ephod out of it. And you know what happened? The people of Israel began to do what? To worship it. Idolatry. You see conflict. One more example. You see this pattern again with Jeremiah. You see, Judah's apostasy and corruption we know was leading to the Babylonian then conquest, and it, that was set. God had said, that's it. You know, you're going to be conquered. And he sent Jeremiah then to proclaim that, and the people didn't listen to him. But there's a confrontation then with Jeremiah. And it says there at the beginning of Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to me in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah. And the commission is, and you know it well, before I what? Formed you. In the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. But it wasn't that I just knew you. It wasn't just that I consecrated you. I have already appointed you. I have commissioned you a prophet to the nations. And the concern, the doubt is, of course, he said, but wait a minute. I'm but a what? I'm but a youth. <laughs> I'm just a kid. How can I do anything? I don't even know how to speak. 
And the Lord comforts him, and he says, don't say I am a youth, because everywhere I send you, you shall go, and all that I command you, you shall speak. You see what he's saying is there, it's not going to be your words, it's going to be my words that are going to come out of your mouth. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. And then he confirms it with two signs. He brings an almond bush into the uh, arena uh, there next to, to Jeremiah. And the almond is the shaked, and it represents, it's a symbol of the shoked. And there's a play on words here. What the almond bush then represents is that God will shoked, watch over his people. That's not enough. Uh, He has a vision of a boiling pot facing away from the north. And that vision confirms that there is going to be great devastation that is going to overpour from God's wrath from the north. And we know that to be the Babylonians. And then it's followed by the conflict. And, of course, we know Jeremiah's life was filled with conflict. (laughs) The people rejected his message. False prophets and royal officials opposed him. He was beaten and put in stocks. He was condemned to death, even though that was then uh, he was spared. And then the king took his scroll and cut it up and burned it, the word of God. And then he was thrown into a miry pit where he was left to die, but was finally rescued. You see, there was conflict. You see, in all of these, we see this pattern. When there is a great commission, God miraculously rescues his people from impossible situations. Does the world seem impossible today? Does it seem to be going to the dogs? Does it seem to be almost irreversible? Yeah. God has the ability and he promises to rescue his people miraculously from impossible situations. The crisis. And then what he does is he uses ordinary people Class of 165, number 64 out of it. He uses ordinary people. He uses late bloomers. Boy, that's a late bloomer for you. How old was Moses? He was 40 when he went in the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 years. He was 80 years old. He uses mediocre, average, run-of-the-mill people, sometimes that seem to be beyond their prime. And they feel completely inadequate. And sometimes we do. And then he entrusts them with world-changing commissions, big tasks. He empowers and assures them with his presence. And then he calls them to do what? To risk everything. To risk everything even when they face life-altering circumstances and life-threatening opposition. You see, this is what Jesus' Great Commission is about. So as we take a new look at the Great Commission tonight, think about that pattern. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were what? Doubtful. There it is. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth, in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, because, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So what's the crisis? The crisis is of uncertainty. You can imagine the disciples. You know, where do we go from here? You know, okay, the Lord is resurrected and we've seen him. But where do we go from here? Do we go back to our secular jobs? Do we go back to the farms? Do we go back to the fishing nets? Why why did he call us to Galilee? Why not Jerusalem? You know, why isn't the, the government toppled? We thought that that was going to happen. He's the king. You know, what's going to happen next? What's this thing, the kingdom of God? As much as he taught about it, they still don't quite get what the kingdom of God is about. So there is a crisis in their mind. 
And Jesus' legacy is hanging in the balance because he's going to do what? He is about to return home to the Father. He is leaving this world, and he is going to entrust his legacy to these 11 who are going to elect a 12th, Matthias, to follow Judas. Who would finish his work on earth? Or would this be yet one more prophet, even though he was resurrected, would he be one more prophet that then would begin a reform, only then for everything to fall into apostasy again? After all, look at Elijah. Elijah had been translated. He had gone to heaven. (laughs) So there's a crisis of uncertainty. Then there's a confrontation. He had appeared to them behind closed doors, and when he did, the confrontation comes a little before this. You remember what happened. They were fearful. They thought it was a ghost. They trembled. And what did he say to them? What did he say to them? We talked about this the other day. What be unto you? Peace be unto you. He brought peace to their hearts, and he settled their their troubled souls to assuage their fear. You see, like Moses, they were startled when they confronted God, but he eased their souls. And then there's the commission. There is an impossibly huge task to accomplish. Stop and think about it. (laughs) Make disciples. Okay. Make Christ followers of people. Of whom? Not just Israel, not just Syria, not just Lebanon, not just this region. Make disciples of what? All nations. (laughs) Wow. In other words, the only thing I'm asking you to do is save the world. That's all. Now, I'm going to help you do it, but go out and save the world. With just 11 followers of a renegade Jewish rabbi, they're going to change the world. Against the powerful Jewish religious establishment and the temple that has stood for centuries and has just been remodeled by Herod. Against the crushing Roman machine that has its vast pantheon of pagan gods to oppose them. Even if they were to make inroads with the Jews, they've got the Gentiles to deal with. Or even if the Gentiles begin to listen to the message, they've got the Jews to deal with. And those two are mortal enemies against each other. How can that rift be healed? It seems like an impossibly huge task, the commission. Folks, sometimes today, the commission seems to be impossible. And then there's a concern and the doubt. They're unlikely candidates. You know, they doubted earlier when he appeared to them, even after after they saw him eat. Luke tells us, then that they, there were still some who could not believe because of their joy and, and their amazement. And now on the mountain, some of them even still doubt. You see, they're inadequate. They feel they are. They're fishermen. Some of them were farmers probably. A tax man, and on the other end of the spectrum, a factionary revolutionary that Simon the Zealot that didn't get along with Matthew probably. <laughs> they weren't powerful in worldly ways. They weren't of noble birth like Isaiah. They were all commoners, not religious leaders. Mm. So there's a concern and doubt. There was comfort and assurance. What did he say? At the very beginning of this, he said, all what? All what? All authority is given to me where? In heaven and on earth. And then at the end of this, he says what? He says, and lo, I who have all the authority in heaven and on earth, I am going to be with you always. I go with you. And there's a confirmation. Well, we don't get to the confirmation tonight. Next week, we see the confirmation of this because, Chris, you're preaching, and you're going to preach on what? Acts 1 and what? The election of Matthias? No. (laughs) What? The ascension. The ascension. And this stuns them. This amazes them. They gawk as they watch him. I'm going to take away your thunder, okay? 
But there's a sign, you see. And then there's a second confirmation. And Joshua, where are you? Joshua's going to preach on it then after the Labor Day weekend. And what is that? Wind and fire. Pentecost and the pouring out of the Spirit. So there is confirmation that is yet to come. And then there's conflict that follows it. Peter and John are thrown into prison in Acts 4, almost immediately after Pentecost. The apostles then are taken before the Sanhedrin. They're told, shut up. We told you once, and then we mean it. And they say, what? Well, we just can't because we got to obey whom? God and not you. Acts 7, Stephen is martyred. Acts 12, James was put to death by Herod. Which James? You got two to choose from. James, brother of Jesus, or James, brother of John? James, brother of John, son of Zebedee, was put to death. Peter was imprisoned again in Acts 12. And then, you know, you have the whole litany of Paul's sufferings that are described in 2 Corinthians 11th chapter. And most of the apostles, according to church tradition, most of the apostles all met what kind of death? A martyr's death. So there's conflict. Now, I'm going to shift gears for just a moment and very briefly summarize what I said the other day, what the commission is. And I want to come back to this pattern. So what's in this commission? Remember this. Put yourself in the shoes of Dwight David Eisenhower, you know, about to go on D-Day. Put yourself in the shoes of Isaiah, of Jeremiah, of Moses, of the rest of these that have these great commissions. Put yourself in the shoes of Isaiah as he stands in the temple and he is awestruck by the presence of the Lord. And the Lord says, who is then going to go for me? And Isaiah says, here I am, Lord, I'm going to go for you. Put yourself in those shoes with a daunting, impossible mission to accomplish. And though you know that the Lord is going to go with you, you know that you're going to encounter conflict. Jesus sends each one of you on this mission, just like he did the apostles. And he entrusts with you his legacy. And he shows us in this commission how to build the kingdom. And he gives us then his all-powerful and all-abiding presence. So he sends us on mission in this. We are going along the way. You know what we said about that. That's participle. What this means is we do this as we go in everyday life. It means that we don't have to go to China to do it. We don't have to go to Nigeria to do it. We don't have to be foreign missionaries. We don't have to be home missionaries. One of the problems with that, and I alluded to this but didn't describe it thoroughly the last time I preached on this, was, folks, the, the, the problem with treating it only as a participle, just as a, well, I'm just kind of doing it, is this. It has the force of an imperative. Every time Jesus uses this participle to go in the way that he does here, there are about six times, I think, in, in the Gospels, when he, when he uses it to his disciples, it has the force of an imperative. In other words, what he's saying is, he's saying, I want you to go every day. You may not have to go way far away, but I want you to be on the business. And he uses a participle here, I think, because that means it, it's, it, it, it involves the personality of the person. It is the one who is going. The emphasis isn't so much on the action. What the emphasis is on is the engagement of the person in the action. So what he's calling, folks, for you to do is, as you go, and you go every day, he's calling you to be engaged in the commission work. It does have the force of an imperative. There are four aspects of being sent. We're personal agents. He gives us a portfolio and a plan and a purpose. Personal agents, we are all then what? We're Christ followers first as we go. That means he calls us as disciples and as witnesses. The other side of that is, and we need to remember this, is that we're also God's covenant people. 
We're, we're not the old covenant people, but we're the new covenant people that he has come then to enforce or to, to bring into place. So that's another dimension to it. We're not only disciples and witnesses, we're also ambassadors. We're representatives of the kingdom of God and heralds. And he gives us two portfolios in that, in this great commission. It's not only about evangelism. One of them is proclaim the word, that's true. But the other is to build a kingdom. Both of these are involved here. And you cannot have one without the other. And then he gives us a plan. Go out and seek and save the lost would be one way of putting it. That's one portfolio. And the other is to seek what in the kingdom? Seek his righteousness in his kingdom. And then when we do this, we all do it for the redemptive purpose that we've been talking about for months. You see, it all comes together here at the foot of the cross, at the empty tomb, and now in the Great Commission. And that is, his legacy must be sustained through disciples then communicating the message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and eternal life. And he entrusts us with that, with that legacy. So then the imperative is what? Make disciples. And first we must do what? We must become a disciple. We ourselves must be disciples of Christ. This is the first priority to follow him. And what does it mean to be a disciple? We've said it many times. A disciple is someone who wants to be with a master, somebody that wants to be like the master, and somebody who wants to obey the master. That's pretty total, isn't it? So we're called to do that first. And then secondly, after we have become disciples, we make disciples. And the mandate is to reduplicate this in others. We want to call other people to do the same thing. Encourage people to want to be with Jesus, to be like Jesus, and to obey Jesus. And the process is twofold. There is a gospel portfolio. That's the proclamation to seek and save the lost. And there's the kingdom portfolio. Build the kingdom. Now, how do we build a kingdom? Two ways. One is depth. Spiritual formation. Do you see that in the Great Commission? Teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you, and also doing what? Baptizing them. And there is a breadth dimension to this building the kingdom. He says to do what? Go not just to Israel, not just to the neighboring countries, but to all nations. And the goal is to accomplish God's redemptive purpose. When did this redemptive purpose begin? Well, we saw that it began actually in Genesis, the third chapter. But where, were, where do we really first begin to see that in the scarlet thread? Where does he really begin to proclaim his redemptive purpose? Genesis, the which chapter? Twelfth chapter. And who? Abram. And he said, I'm going to do what through you, Abram? I am going to raise you up. You're going to be a patriarch. going to be a father of many nations. And through you, what? All nations will be blessed. So Jesus gives them the commission to do what? To take this message, this message to whom? All nations. You see, God desires that everyone would be saved, Paul tells Timothy in his first letter. And then he shows us how to build a kingdom. How do we build a kingdom? There are two foundational ways. One is through the kerygma, the proclamation. That's a noun for proclamation. Proclaiming the what? The cross. And then through the teachings, through the teachings of the apostles. You see, the first task of discipling is, he says, doing what? Make disciples, and first you do what? You baptize them. That is a charismatic act. That's a technical theological term. What does it mean? It is a proclamatory act. 
when a person then goes into the baptistry or into the cattle tank or into the river, wherever it is, and they go under the water and they come back up, they are doing what? They are proclaiming the message of the gospel. It is a sermon that is being demonstrated symbolically in that act. They are buried with Christ unto death. What, it, what dies? The sin, the old person, and they are raised to walk in a what? New life. That, that's the gospel, you see. So there is that dimension of proclamation. And then, then the second task is to teach. To teach. You see, we don't just bring folks into the kingdom, but then we nurture them and we grow them teaching them everything that Jesus taught and recovering that through the Scripture and also the Holy Spirit reminding us of what it means. It takes two forms of content. We teach them Christian doctrine, okay? We teach them the stuff that is in the Bible from the Old Testament to the New Testament. So when I say Christian, I'm talking about holistically. All that is involved doctrinally in doctrine and practice. But there's another way of teaching, and that is through spiritual formation, through exercising the spiritual disciplines, we're in a season of emphasizing, and I hope we always do this, but we're in a season of emphasizing one of the spiritual disciplines. And what is that? Prayer. Fasting. Giving. Worship. All of these are ways of teaching the gospel. Giving knowledge, modeling it, mentoring it, and discipline, folks, and keeping the commandments. And then he gives us his all-powerful authority and his abiding promise of presence. The power that he gives us in this great commission, just like the one that swears that officer in, out on the parade field, that authority does not come from that officer who swears those, peop, those, those young lieutenants in. The commission is signed by the President of the United States. Does the authority come from the President? No, they make an oath to defend, support, and defend the what? Constitution of the United States. It comes from the word, the covenanted word of the people of this nation and the Constitution. You see, the power and the authority here comes from the word of God himself. The living, breathing word, Jesus Christ, and it also comes from his written word. That is the authority, and all authority has been given to me. You have power. We have power when we go forth and we speak the gospel to people. We need to be faithful to speaking what the Word of God says, and we need to be confident when we say this. Even when people seem that they don't respond, even when people seem like they're rejecting it, there's somebody else at work, and that's the Holy Spirit. And we never, never, we never ever know how those seeds that are planted may be nurtured and grown by the Holy Spirit. And when they will come under the power of conviction, you see, it is his power. It is his authority. It is his word. And then he says, I will be with you then always. He's already told them this in John 14. I'm going away, but don't worry. I'm going, I'm never going to leave you. And now he fulfills this promise. And you know what I said the other day? I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And you know that is code for what? I am, it is one of those ego I me, I me passages. It's one of those passages that said, it's not just a man that's talking to you. I am, who is the I am that was a witness when Moses stood on Mount Horeb. It is the I am who actually spoke to Gideon 
It is the I am who spoke then to Jeremiah. You see, throughout the ages, I have been with my people and I then fulfill my promise. And there's an allness in this commission. We have all the power that he invests in us to go to all nations, and we should, to teach all things that he has commanded us. And we know this, that he is always with us. So today, as we put it in perspective against this pattern that we talked about earlier, folks, what an awesome responsibility we have. Think about it. We walk in the footsteps of those apostles that were commissioned, and he calls us to do the same thing. You know, I, as a soldier, admire people like Douglas MacArthur, who, oh, by the way, graduated number one in his class. Okay? I admire people like Dwight Eisenhower. I admire people like my dad, who served for 20 years in the military and retired sergeant major. I admire them. I follow those role models. They were given great responsibility, and through history in the military, they show the next generation of soldiers then how to live out that commission and how to do their duty in the right way. Well, folks, the apostles have shown us the same thing. And we look at their lives, and we see what happened. God gave them a great commission to save the world, and I'm going to be with you, but you're going to face conflict. He says the same thing to us. He can miraculously rescue these people in this nation today. It may seem like it is a desperate, it is a desperate situation. It, it may seem like the time of the judges. Help me here. Everybody did as they saw right in their own eyes. Like this morning we were talking about, a litigious society, greed and notoriety and insanity all around us. You know? But God can rescue his people in even the most desperate of times. He did it in Egypt. He did it after the Babylonian captivity. And he did it through Jesus Christ at the cross and the resurrected tomb. And who does he use? Who does he use? He uses ordinary people from around the globe. Ordinary people around the corner. Ordinary people from the Philippines. Ordinary people from Argentina and Brazil. Ordinary people from, we had a visitor this morning in the worship service, Ehab, from Egypt. Ordinary people that he calls into his covenant community in the new covenant to do his will. And you know, sometimes we feel inadequate. Lord, who am I? I'm not a very capable speaker. Lord, who am I? You know, I don't have, I don't have the necessary gifts and power and skills to do it. Well, that's what Moses said, but God changed that. And he entrusts us with a world-changing commission. And he empowers and assures us that he will go with us no matter where we go. Here's the rub, friends. What was the last C? What was the last C? After he's confirmed his presence, after he promises and assures us, after he says, I'm going to walk with you. Then he says, now the road is going to be real smooth and wide. The road is what? It is narrow. And folks, sometimes it's rough. What we do when we take that commission on, we take on the risk and the responsibility of facing opposition. 
Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not saying that that means that we need to become, you know, spiritual bullies and tough like that. But, folks, what we have to do is we have to face that opposition knowing that we risk something. We know that the Lord can accomplish through us in the word that he puts in us an impossible task. But there's some people in the battle that are casualties. Some of the apostles were martyred. Sometime when you go out there, you not only face opposition, you may face persecution. Fortunately, none of us that I know of has faced the kind of persecution that some of our brothers and some of our sisters and other parts of the world today are facing. But there are Christians that are standing forth to proclaim the gospel, and they're putting their lives on the line every day. And some of them, even today, are dying for the faith. There is going to come a day in this nation, if things do not change, there is going to come a day in this nation where the risk is going to be palpable for Christians. There's going to come a day when they will try to muzzle us, they will try to silence us, they will try to call it hate speech, they will try to do everything in the world that they can to silence the message of the gospel. When I say they, folks, I'm talking about spiritual powers and forces that we do not see. Are we ready for that? Are we ready to take up the task to face the opposition Gently loving people, encouraging them to become Christ's disciples, but at the same time doing it prophetically in the way that the apostles did. This is a great commission. It's a great task, and there is a great risk in discipleship that is coming.